the burden of disease and the ability to manage the disease is worst in the most deprived areas and certain other groupings. And unless you actually build that into your planning and understand about the inequality that there is there and the deprivation of gender and so on, you will not hit your frontline objectives, which might be about finance or activity or four-hour A&E weights or, or whatever it is. They will they will not be solvable unless you actually take on board the difference that there is in terms of the burden of disease and the way it's spread. Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to Professor Chris Bentley. Chris is an independent public health consultant and has years of experience working in public health, both at home and overseas. We'll hear more about this today, but Chris started his public health journey working in Somalia in the 80s, following graduating as a doctor, working both in the charity sector and then as an advisor for the Somali government. On return to the UK and having retrained in public health, he worked as Director of Public Health in West Sussex, Sheffield and South Yorkshire. Following his work as Director of Public Health, he worked for the Health Inequalities National Support Team, helping to reduce health inequalities in 70 of the most deprived areas of England. Since 2011, he has worked independently, supporting local systems across the country, nationally for Public Health England and NHS England, advising on the long-term plan and sustainability and transformation partnerships. As if this isn't enough, he's also been working internationally with WHO in Europe and the Ministry of Health in Poland. I know all of his work has a strong focus on tackling and preventing health inequalities and finding ways that systems can support vulnerable people. It's almost like your CV, Chris, has been written to be on this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Glad to do it. I remember when when I first met you, um, I heard you talking, Chris, and you likened health inequality to saying grace. I wonder whether you could tell me what you meant by that. Yeah, certainly. Health inequalities is something that that slips off the tongue and people talk about it as being, oh, yes, it's one like motherhood and apple pie, if you like. And um the uh, I used to get invited to conferences, particularly when I was director of public health and policy or whatever, uh, and they say, oh, "Chris, we, could you start us off by talking about health inequalities? Because that's what gets us off up in the morning." And uh, so I'd start off there, and I just knew that these people—they almost—they'd lower their eyes and they'd, uh, they, you know, uh, just cross their hands. And then at the end, when I'd finished, they almost say "Amen" or "Inshallah" or something, and uh, um, and then got on to doing the usual stuff about finances and activity and and so on and so on. So uh, I got fed up with doing that, and so had to try and sort of kick people out of that that and uh 
you know, my approach has always been one of being very um, practical um, and not just arm wavy and well-meaning, but actually what can we actually do to make a difference? And that's uh, that's been the stance that I've tried to adopt, breaking through the uh, grace element. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I suppose in being well-meaning, what, what is it about um, health inequalities that is a priority? Well, the, the point is that it is such a social injustice. That's the thing. And, and people, uh, irritatingly at the moment, uh, now that it's become part of the long-term plan, people say, well, what is health inequalities? And the thing, it's, it's important that you actually recognise it when you see it. You can't just define it out and constrain it by some kind of boundaries or barriers and say, it's got to be about this, it's got to be about that. It's about social injustice. And essentially, people find themselves in circumstances that are out, have been probably outside their control um, and um, they just uh, mean that they can't live the kind of uh, fulfilling and safe and healthy lives that uh, we all should have a, the right to do. Yeah, okay. And so that's kind of, it sounds like that's come from a strong drive from and value of yours to um, for justice, really. Would you say that was true? It's totally true. Um, mm. And uh, I mean, I suppose my, my first exposure to health inequalities, real health inequalities, was actually in London when I was training as a doctor. I hadn't really realised it though that I was I was working in central London, uh, what's now Camden Islington sort of area, and uh, some of those areas were awful. And uh, I remember as a, as a medical student going out into Camden Islington, sort of on a days off sort of thing, and taking kids from some of the high rise. Um, flats and so on out to the park or the zoo or something and it was just a real learning experience um, so that was a starting point and then when I went to Somalia um, I just saw what, what it could mean on a, on a global scale really. So I suppose you've had a sort of international perspective and uh, you moved yeah. around the country a lot and being part of the Health Inequalities National Support Team while leading that you've had a good overview of what's going on nationally what can you tell us a little bit about the background of health inequalities in the UK um, over the last sort of 20, 30 years and what's sort of been going well and maybe think some of the things about maybe what's not going so well? I mean, before, before the 2000s, um, it wasn't going well at all. And actually, the government at that stage didn't allow people to talk about inequalities. They, they, you had to talk about variations or variability. Mm. Um, and so... In the early 2000s with the new new government then, they they came in on a manifesto that made it a priority, saying this is totally unacceptable and we've got to do something about it. And uh, they produced the sort of stunning information and data that actually showed the situation with a widening inequalities gap. And um, they immediately commissioned a re big report from, from McDonald Aitchison, who had been the chief medical officer, to actually say, what do we do about it? And then set two to actually take his recommendations fully on board. And so it was, you know, early, mid 2000s that they actually came up with the first health inequalities national strategy um, with, a, with a target. The target was so important as far as I was concerned that they, they set a, a target to narrow the gap between the most deprived 20% of local authorities and the national average, which was already an amazing thing to do. Um, 
nobody knew how to do it. But I, I, I use the analogy of Kennedy saying there's going to be recently uh, very applicable. Uh, there's going to be a, a, an American on the moon by in ten years. Um, and everyone was saying, how on earth they didn't have a clue how to do that? But because he'd committed, um, then everyone started turning their brains to what that could involve and the, looking at what resources were going to require and so on and so on. It's very much the same with this. They didn't really know how to address the inequalities gap, but said, right, this is, how we, this is what we're going to do. And then it was up to us to work out the ways of, of what was the basis of it and what we were going to have to do about it. The, th- the very good thing about it, which which really set me in a direction was was that they got so much more picky about the target they basically said we're going to narrow not now just narrow the gap we're going to narrow the gap by 10 percent mm. so the first time we kind of had how do you make a percentage difference of population level and that's such an important question you can do and public health has for years had to make do with little projects you know projectitis people talk about uh, with small amounts of extra funding for three years or whatever, and a few champions to sort of drive it forward, but you couldn't get away with it. With this, how do you make a percent, measurable percentage difference of population level? Such a big thing. And then by 2010, mm-hmm. so this was in a shorter timescale because again, you can you can actually talk forever about medium and long term gains, and you have to. I mean, I'm not getting away from that. That's obviously very important too. But this said yes, but in the meantime. How? What are the things that you can do to pin something down within a three to five year period? And so, to have that as our homework, and then a, a properly resourced team, um, you know, being given the um, the remit to go around all of those seventy most deprived areas, the spearhead areas, was an amazing um, thing to be able to do. And you know, we, I don't suppose we'll get that kind of opportunity uh, again, but, but to be able to spend a week or so in each place, really looking at what the issues are, what, what were the good things that were going on, what were the main um, barriers and gaps that you came across that were kind of common, um, and, and what were the sort of things that might actually te- help to bridge those. Mm. Um was just a fantastic experience and uh, and then we went back after six weeks and after six months to see what was going on so it wasn't just again a kind of uh, just talk we had we, we were actually looking to see what sort of progress was being made if any and what on what was going to be taken to sort of get through that and and because there was a national target and each local area had their portion of the national target to address there was an open door there for the team going in people were they didn't query they said oh yes please come in you know we're not sure how to do this please give us help so it's fantastic experience um and uh what was the outcome of that chris well unfortunately the um, government changed just at 2010 and so and the new government that came in the coalition government came in they immediately abandoned the national targets they were basically on a remit to say uh, there's been too much national uh, drive from the center we're going to actually put far more out into the uh, local areas and so on so um, they abandoned the target they stopped monitoring it uh, and they withdrew all the resources that there had been for us to to carry out those kind of uh, the, the teamwork and so on Fortunately, some parts of the country, particularly the northwest, 
continue to to work with their targets um and they uh, because of that they they kept monitoring and um so they were able to then show that actually the the target a 10% reduction was achieved and we would have probably hit the target earlier except for the fact that um, alcohol related harm really went on the increase in the particularly the the more deprived areas the spearhead areas during the late 80s and uh um that sort of came up on the inside track and took everyone a bit by surprise and it so we weren't really working on that particular issue very much um otherwise perhaps we'd have done it a bit earlier but it was hit and the evidence that that was a that was uh, achieved was published a couple of years ago by Ben Barr in the BMJ so uh, thank goodness mm-hmm. the, the the big shame about it of course was that not just did we hit the target or not but all that experience, I mean, what it should have been evaluated properly and we should have been able to write it up in a way that actually didn't lose the learning and the, uh, and, and the reflection and, and, and everything that went on as part of it. Um, and that was rearranging of government and funding. That, it was. Yeah. But yeah. Um, anyway, that, that's, uh, that's been what I've tried to do since 2010-11 was to... Um, to, to really keep carrying on the the lessons we learned, the experiential um, basis of the tools and and uh, various measures that we we um, worked through, um, and really to try and keep them up up to the current context, keep try and keep them fresh and relevant, so that you know some perhaps people don't realise that it came from you know the two thousands but they can still see the relevance of it all. And uh, it's great to see that you do talk to new audiences and new generations of people who weren't there for the 2000s. You know, you still see the light bulb moments uh, coming through, which is uh, which is excellent and, and shouldn't be lost. And that's, what, that's the mission, really, to try and keep that going. Mm-hmm. I suppose with life expectancy starting to plateau and in some... Some groups, particularly women, it's starting to fall, which personally I find quite scary. How some of the work of the Health and Equality National Support Team, is it possible to replicate that now? Would it be possible to do that again in today's climate? It would be entirely possible if the will was there. You don't you wouldn't want to just re, you know, copy uh what we no. did in the late two okay. thousands. But the, the the work and the approach, I think, is entirely possible. I mean, the the thing about it is that people didn't and and still don't understand what the basis it is and what has to be done. And um, um, what we had to do as the team when we went into a place, what 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 our objective was was to by the time we left, for people to be able to say, oh, but we can do that. When we went in, often. We talked to the chief executives or the council leads or whatever, and they were just, you could tell they didn't know what to do and they were expecting that it would involve something, some kind of white magic that public health would come up with, you know, that, that um, I don't know, involved eye of toad and tail of mute or something. Um, but what we had to do was demystify it all. That was the, the big phrase that we used demystify it to actually show that you can break it down into uh, practical chunks and then show people how they could actually do something about that and that's that was a core of what we needed to do 
Mm-hmm. And it sounds like based on how rewarding and how um, amazing that work with the Health Inequality National Support Team was that you've tried to continue it to this day, um, some of this work independently. Yes. What learning points would you take from it um, and what would you do now? There are huge numbers of, the, of those things, but um, I think that health inequalities is is very complex and deep-rooted. So you can't just do one or two things and, and say, oh, we're addressing health inequalities by doing more on smoking cessation or, you know, taking, we want going to do one thing and do it properly. It doesn't work that way. People are living in an environment, a complex environment, where they've got problems with, uh, uh, you know, the basis of it all is poverty, um, poor educational attainment, uh, discrimination. You know, all those kind of fundamental things are there. And you don't just get rid of those. People will continue to go back into the environment where those things are present. And so what we've got to be doing is actually taking the services that we definitely need and we need to get better at doing in some cases, but we need to take them back into environments like that to see how they will work there. So, um, you know, the things that kill people are the same in the most deprived areas on the whole uh, as they are anywhere else. It's heart disease, it's cancer, it's respiratory disease, it's liver problems these days. Um, And... Uh, the quest, the problem is that in more deprived communities, it occurs 10 to 15 years earlier. And so the burden of disease is greater in the more deprived areas and some other protected groups and so on. And yeah. not only the burden of disease, but it's occurring in people that, who particularly haven't got the skills, competencies, resources, knowledge to actually manage that. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it's a, it's a double whammy, really. Uh, and we're bound to get disproportionate impacts on outcomes in those uh, kind of environments. And so what we've got to be looking at is saying, yes, we're going, to, we're going to say coronary heart disease, for example. We know how to manage that. We've got the best evidence base of anything is how you manage coronary heart disease. You can make 30 to 40 percent difference to people's expectancy of having a stroke or a heart attack or whatever uh, by properly managing it. Um, So the question then is, how do we get that to as many people we can as possible with the greatest need? Um, And the answers, part of that answer is within services. And uh, there's this kind of bimodal thing. Um, In services, how do we manage unwarranted variation? Because some people don't get into the system. Some people, the system just doesn't suit at all. Some people can't manage themselves or self-manage with the care plans that they get and they need extra support. And that sort of stuff can be done by services. But the other side of the coin is about how the population uses the services and is supported to use the services. And that's what gets most neglect. And the risk there is that the NHS can actually just deal with that one side of the equation and just play play around with their services to try and get those uh, um, more consistent. Fine, that's important. But what about the other side and, and, and reaching out to populations that aren't able to sort of easily access those sort of however good services? And that the, the basis of that has to be um, working with all our partners, local authorities, 
uh, voluntary community sector, and so on and so on. A lot of the of the their work is already going on in those most complex communities. And what we need to be doing is to link together health into those areas so that we can actually say, yes, we know what to do when people come with this. How do we get more of them to come in, stay in, get the better outcomes? And we'll need a lot of help with that. And uh, for me, that's why the benefits of what we now are calling place-based working are so strong. If we can actually say, even for sort of slightly clinical things sounding like coronary heart disease management or whatever, hypertension or diabetes, if we actually, unless we actually engage our partners in that on a place basis and help get them to help us to help others to, to use the services appropriately, we just won't make that kind of impact. So place-based working for me is a really good forward step. And in my mind, place-based working um, kind of brings in the um, feeling of community as well. How do we get services and the community to work better together? I know you talk about it being a sort of a no man's land between the yes. community and services. How do we improve that? Well, the, the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, one of the big lessons from the inequalities team days was the, the development of this thing we now call the population intervention triangle, where, and we started off with a blank sheet of paper in the mid-2000s saying, how on earth do we make a percentage difference of population level? And it became clear that there are three main ways that you can do that. The first one is, is, is civic uh, interventions and reg- legislation, regulation, taxation, healthy public policy, um, even national things like uh, stopping smoking in enclosed public spaces and so on. You know, it's, those sort of things can impact whole populations um, then you've got community-based working and, and the, the whole thing about pe- people's well-being and health and control of their own health and, and well-being can often come through the kind of community that they're, they're within. And things like social capital, where you're actually, you've got friends and you've got networks and you've got supports. Good, strong, resilient community on its own can be marvellous for, for health, never mind how it interacts with services or, or, or the civic authorities. And then the third part of it all is services themselves, not just health services, but any kind of service. And again, it's this thing where you're actually looking at consistent delivery of a, of a, a good evidence base, but making sure that you think about how the population use those services and are supported to use them. So that makes up a triangle we call the population intervention triangle, those three elements. And each of them can separately do stuff that will improve health and well-being at a population level. And what we've then done in the more recent iterations of this is actually looked at the interfaces between those um, and actually said that if we can actually get the, the, those interfaces much better, Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I use the, the acute uh, <laughs> description of, of using it, calling them seams, um, because people talk about seamless. And, and actually, uh, in Oud Couture, um, they say that we put all our effort into the seams because that's how you get the best form and function to your garment. And, and I like that. I carry that forward because if we put more effort into our seams rather than just calling them seamless, um, we will get the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And and one of the one of those scenes is the one between service and community, which you asked me about. Yeah. And and um the trouble is that in many places services stand slightly apart from the communities that they're serving. 
and we talk about community services. I, I'm a non-executive in a, in a community trust, um, and that's all about community nursing and physios and, and so on and so on, and really important staff, care homes, um, and those sort of things are, are really important. But quite often they still sit separate from the places where people actually live and the communities that they're actually part of. Mm-hmm. And so what, what uh, I keep trying to draw attention to is those areas where there is that gap we call no man's land where you get little sorties going across from one to the other and you get some little successes but how much better would it be if we actually were camped in no man's land and we were working together to actually bridge that population support um into service that way and Mm -hmm. and uh you know i've seen really really good examples of that often outside the health sector and uh, you know, there was an initiative called Public Sector Reform, where, and I've seen fantastic examples in the northwest, where, where you've got um, community venues supported by the housing um, sector, uh, and then uh, community safety, work and skills, um, and uh, support on income and debt were all things that were being really pursued within no man's land really and what they'd done was they'd actually brought people from the communities themselves and got them to work on identifying the needs and then turning themselves into champions where they could actually help as peer support and reviews and actually trying to make really make that a seamless join between what the services uh, often not health but other services and the real communities actually needed so I've seen some fantastic examples of that, and I've also seen the exact opposite far more often, mm-hmm. where people that they talk integrated services, they talk care closer to home, and so on. But it's it's all on a um, suiting the services sort of basis, rather than actually re- in reality working out what it is that gets in the way of people where people live, mm-hmm. and and being able to respond. Mm-hmm. And with sort of integrated care systems and now STPs, is is community forming a big part of that, or do you think that's still quite sort of a sideline thing? Yeah, unfortunately, it feels still a bit of a sideline. You know, the problem is that the health service has got its quite strong sort of top down drives as to what needs to be sharpened up and being done better and whatever. Part of that drive is to say we want you to work on local, locally derived uh, outcomes and objectives, which is fine. But at the same time, there's the kind of pressures of time and finance and so on that actually drive people to do what they have to do rather than some of the things that perhaps would be a bit slower, a bit more integrated, a bit more um, involved and a little bit longer in in inception Mm. um Mm. and and so that can get in the way a bit but Mm. i think that the potentials there and i think i think the the intentions there um and the words are there (laughs) um but the 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 problem is in translation And, and i think one of the examples of that would be primary care networks um new the new kid on the block sort of thing and um that you know fine as long as long as for example there's some awareness of the of the no man's land issue and mm-hmm. the, the the risk is that in some primary care networks you may actually find them being very in, inward looking about working about how they work with their peers and and uh, other parts of the the businesses as it were to do the job 
um, without necessarily seeing how they could connect more flexibly and meaningfully with uh, the communities that they're now, you know, part of the the system and the place mm-hmm. of. And how would you recommend someone, for example, starting up a primary, well, um, being a, let's say there was a clinical director of a primary care network, how would you recommend that they connect better with their community? I think the thing is to work with the partners as a starting point. I'm part, I'm non-executive in, uh, in, in one of these areas and, uh, um, the the local the local authority and the local community trust and quite a lot of the voluntary and community sector had already been working through what a neighbourhood structure would look like and involving general practice in that um, and it was looking really positive as a way forward to do exactly what I'm talking about really really working out whether there was a no man's land and how you might bridge it. And the new initiative of PCNs has sort of stalled that rather and uh, and, and changed the kind of bit of the power relationships and the, you know, the, the focus uh, of that work. So it may just be a, a startup problem um, where people are obviously having to uh, spend all their time thinking about how to make it work. But and hopefully we could come out the other side, but I really hope we can. And I think the focus needs to be um, once you've got your, your act together in primary care, work out how that's going to go, really connect back into the infrastructures and, and so on that are there as part of the, the place-based working. Um, Chris, I wanted to chat to you a little bit about pre- prevention. There's lots of things that contribute towards health inequalities and health and well-being generally and sometimes when we talk about prevention we um we immediately think about smoking diet exercise that sort of thing um what does prevention mean to you well i've got a a, a framework which i developed from somebody called uh, labonte a canadian guy uh, and i use it a lot I, almost every speak talk i give i start with uh, using that framework because it's very practical framework there are lots of others like dogger and whitehead which people wheel out a lot which is fine nothing wrong with it um and uh, and also some of the marmot stuff but this one for me is the most practical it just gives me a shows me the way in and it's got sort of four major blocks to it one one is about um the 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 risks, the, the main um, driving force, the wider determinants, poverty, um, discrimination, um, poor education attainment, those sort of things. Then the other, the next block is, a, is around that, the impact of that on individuals, a sort of psychosocial impact on things like self-esteem, um, you know, meaning and purpose of life. Those things then combine to to come to um, influence the behaviours people adopt. So that's where the smoking and the, um, you know, low, poor activity and, and, and um, substance misuse and so on come in as people try to find ways through difficult days and lives without much hope and, and so on and so on. And then those all things all together combine to actually do things to your body, like uh, raise your blood pressure and your stress hormones and make you depressed and anxious. And those things then lead to the things that eventually kill you and do dis- disable you. And so each of those blocks, you need to work on a prevention element to them. So you want to be preventing poverty. You want to be preventing discrimination. Uh, you want to be preventing poor, poor school attainment, you know, as well as um, working on um, preventing uh, a lack of social 
inclusion and, and social capital in communities and uh, and so on. And then, yes, stopping people moving on to an addictive uh, lifestyle or whatever. And and then for people who are smoking or overweight or whatever, how do we prevent that from turning into high blood pressure or diabetes? Each of those points is an intervention around prevention. And yeah. I mean, prevention is just a, a word that means stopping stuff yeah. from yeah. happening. I mean, it's not so something it's huge, magical. Isn't it? It's huge. Yeah. And, and why limit yourself with it? Yes, yeah. of course, we've got to be preventing as much as we can. Uh, why wait for things to get bad yeah. before we start treating them? We've got to try and stop them getting to that point. Yeah. The only thing about, I just would add as a codicil to prevention thing, and we should be working on all of those elements, is is not to imagine that we just have to keep working on a cycle that actually says, oh, if we prevent poverty, uh, then we will um, reduce problems with self-esteem and then there'll be less people with an alcohol problem and therefore we won't get so much raised blood pressure. It may work like that on individuals, but on a population basis, you don't just get rid of those problems in a society, in a community. And what you're always going to be doing is trying to mitigate those problems. Um, they're not going to go away. So I, I, I almost like the word mitigate better than prevent. Because you're actually trying to say, look, we're not going to get rid of them, but we've got to do all we can to to reduce the damage and the the risk that it develops. Mm -hmm. Chris, on a practical level, you've got these frameworks which on paper look fantastic. Is this actually achievable? It is achievable, yes. Mm -hmm. I think that that a couple of the things that that get in the way of it. The first one um, is fragmentation. We had... In the 2000s, the, one of the big things there was we had an, a national target and that drew everyone together. They all knew what their role, what their part to play in that national role was. And, um, you know, that was such a strong point. Nowadays, it sounds great to say uh, we're not going to set any national target. We're going to leave it to all local areas. What that means is patchiness and variability. And, you know, I know... The variability is just enormous. And um, so you're never going to make a consistent difference in, in a way, you know, as my credo is about population level change. You know, you can get little projects working here and there, um, but you've got to work in a different way if you're going to get population level change. And the, the variability that we've got at the moment makes it very difficult. Um, the, the, the second thing, the, the most important thing is the level of leadership. And we, and we found with the inequalities team that if we if we just sent in saying, you know, we're going to count, we want to, we're offering to come in and talk to you about the inequalities agenda, um, it would just slip off the chief executive's desk onto probably in those days public health. We stopped working like that and we insisted that we got the chief executive, that we got uh, the high ups, people from the local authority and, and so on and so on um, into our first meeting. Because unless you get ownership and involvement and commitment of the top leadership, these things just go down to some lower level of priority, resourcing and so on and so on, that you're just not going to get the impact at population levels. And that's a really difficult thing to achieve. You don't do that by saying grace at the beginning of meetings. You've got to actually do it by making as much of a financial and a business case for it, which is strong. 
you know, and the burden of disease and the ability to manage the disease is most is worst in in the most deprived areas and certain other groupings. And unless you actually build that into your planning and understand about the inequality that there is there and the deprivation agenda and so on, you will not hit your frontline objectives, which might be about finance or activity or four-hour A&E weights or, or whatever it is. They will not be solvable unless you actually take on board the difference that there is in terms of the burden of disease and the way it's spread. Yeah. And that fits in nicely with your civic level intervention, I think, in your um, population intervention triangle. Chris. It does. Following on from that, something I sometimes think about is it's all well and good having the civic level intervention. So I don't know, the long term plan mentioning health inequalities you mentioned earlier, but quite often that can just be a statement. And as you say, a little bit like saying grace, how can we make things more accountable? It does sound like actually with the Health Inequalities National Support Team, by setting that target and saying, right, we're going to reduce this by 10% and setting the 2010 deadline on it, you were making yourselves more accountable how can we make ourselves accountable and achieve population health by doing that well it's interesting when you're talking on a place basis and you and you talk like our partners in the in the lga for example uh and we talk we talk about health inequalities uh and the long-term plan there and they say yes but we've always been addressing health inequalities (laughs) you know it's as the different partners have, have had different open doors in relation to this issue it's really with the health service that we've got a problem about keeping it some kind of top line objective and and so for me when i've been trekking my way around the place um how do i get to the top team how do i get to the top table and get their attention and the 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 main way i've done that really is to is to find ways of of using the information the data to just illustrate to them the, the way the burden of disease impacts on their services. And we, I was helped recently by the um, Right Care produced the Health Inequalities Pack, where they've actually demonstrated by ward or by super output area um, that which of which those in, in relation to deprivation have got the highest level of, of unplanned admissions to hospital and what that's due to. And it's a fantastic uh, resource as far as I'm concerned because it actually shows people on a place basis what wards, and people know the names of their wards, and you can actually point to it and say, look, these people have got excessive admissions to hospital. That's important. Secondly, the, the hit them between the eyes picture on this was the fact that if you actually say, and what's the cause of those admissions to hospital, there are about sort of 10 or so common things that cause it. And what you can show with the most in the most deprived areas that it's not just one or two, it's not just COPD or they're not very good on, on uh, heart failure or something. You can see that whatever the problem, they've got excessive admissions to hospital in those areas. And so what I'm able to say from that is, look, there are two issues here. One is you need to make sure that there isn't unwarranted variation from the practices that are supporting those wards for the, those ten things. But what we also need to recognise is that those wards are actually hazardous or toxic wards. Whatever your problem, you're just going to end up in extremis, in crisis, in, in emergency. And so what we also need to do is look down into those wards and say, how can we treat this place? And that's where place-based working really becomes 
uh, a day-to-day let's grapple with this kind of problem that it brings the partnerships together because it means that we will we can start asking the questions of our um, local authority partners from that area the councillors uh, and whatever we can actually look at the the voluntary and community sector areas we can look at the other public sector frontline services such as housing and crime and 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 uh, and so on um and say this is all part of this mainstream agenda yeah it's tying us in to an agenda which we can all say we've got agendas around this yeah so what you're saying it's not just about accountability it's about almost showing people that it's a win-win situation for themselves as well and and you know as i say it it's it's a tool to get yourself the attention of the frontline leadership yeah okay advantage and what do you think the best um indicator is to show that there are numerous yeah measures and i think you know that if you look at the the, the public health outcomes framework, mm. for example, that developed around 2012, yeah. there's a lot of really meaningful and important things in there um, that, you know, and if you set those as targets, you will actually aim mitigating some part of the, of the, um, the problem. But for me... Uh, life expectancy continues to be an important one. I I went through a phase where I was slightly doubtful about that because um, it was all about extending life, and um, and yet I went through a personal period where you know both my parents got dementia, for example, and and uh, so you begin to think, is it just extended life for extended life's sake? And so I then started to think about the healthy life expectancy component more, um, which I still, you know, obviously is still a very important factor. The problem with it, if, if you're a practical based person like I'm trying to be, um, is that healthy life expectancy doesn't tell you what to do about it. Healthy life expectancy is only originated from the health survey for England. And it's basically a five point scale when you say, uh, how is your health at the moment? And they turn that into uh, a healthy life expectancy. It doesn't say whether you need to work on depression or poverty or, you know, what is it that you need to do if you set yourself a target to increase healthy life expectancy and reduce Mm -hmm. the gap, the window between healthy life expectancy and life expectancy. It doesn't tell you how to do that. And and you wouldn't know, if I went and did this and this and this, can I predict that it's going to improve healthy life expectancy by this much? You have no idea because you Mm -hmm. don't know what it is that people draw on to answer those questions at that time in that place. Life expectancy does. Disability-adjusted life expectancy is the next best thing to healthy life mm-hmm. expectancy. But even that's a bit of a construct and we can't get it as detailed and down to a uh, community yeah. sort of level that, that we want to do. So I, I think that, uh, and I always was saying this when I was originally going around as the head of the health inequalities team, uh, we'd go in to talk about reducing mortality or improving life expectancy. And actually a lot of public health people say, oh, it's all, I mean, deaths with you, you know, what about other components of life experience and and what what I I had to say to them was all of those interventions that we work on to improve life expectancy are going to have collateral impact on a whole range of other components of of life and the way it's lived 
And I think that's, for me, because life expectancy or mortality is something that is measured so well, um, so consistently, updated all the time, it becomes really something that we can focus on and uh, can achieve change with. And then what we need to do is behind that, then have sort of interim targets that actually help us with other things that are going to contribute to that. Yeah, okay. I wanted to ask you briefly, just some about some of the stuff you're doing now, and whether there's any sort of new exciting things on the horizon that you wanted to talk about. The two of the main things that I'm doing now, um, go back to the inequalities team stuff and, and keeping it fresh and making it relevant to today's environment, which they entirely are. Um, and I've just um, been working with, with Public Health England on, on some work on place-based uh, approaches to he- addressing health inequalities. And at the core of that is a toolkit, um, which is based on that triangle we talked about earlier. Uh, we've developed a set of um, experientially learned questions, if you like, to make up a toolkit where you can actually self-assess yourselves to see, are we in a strong position to actually make the best impact that we could in these things? And that's a a toolkit um, which is just being published uh, as we speak. And there's another component of that, which I think is also important, which is the population outcome through services uh, framework, um, which we really worked on considerably during the inequalities team days and what what it is is um a framework we used to call it the christmas tree because it was a it was a symmetrical framework um which on the one side was looking at the five factors that were most important for developing the best service outcomes and on the left hand side we a much neglected part which is about how the population uses those services and can be supported to use them and there's another five factors there so it's sort of symmetrical mm-hmm. and then those two th- things two sides are bound together by a kind of strong trunk mm-hmm. uh, which was um, which is balancing off um, that need and the, and the service um, developments yeah. and at the top of that again is leadership which we've been talking all about yeah. and some components of that Um, But that framework is basically saying that if you can slot in on on one side the interventions that work at a a personal level, what factors will um, get in the way or promote um, the way that turns into population level outcomes? And uh, we use that framework um, in a generic sense to actually explore the factors, but we also developed a whole range of workbooks on the topic area. So we started off with heart disease and diabetes and, and th- those things. We went on to do alcohol and tobacco. Um, and then in the end, we were doing them on income and debt and housing and, and joblessness. Um, and it works for any intervention-based service, um, but it really um, strongly talks to what we've been alluding to during this conversation. Um, how do you bridge across between services and places where people live and the communities that mm-hmm. people live in? And uh, this tool, I think, is really helpful. Uh, I've been piloting it um, in particular topics such as hypertension recently, and it's as relevant today as it ever was. And uh, I think it's a tool that um, people can really benefit from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chris, could you tell us one book that you'd recommend to someone interested in tackling 
health inequalities. Yes, this fantastic book that I came across fairly recently called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. This is a guy who might be more famous for his TED Talks, uh, where he uses a lot of uh, fantastic animation to make cases about uh, global health equality and, and so on. But the book is brilliant. As someone who works with data and, and uh, analysis throughout, throughout my certainly population health life, he really puts it all in a new context. And he actually, using the data properly and very illustratively, he actually debunks a lot of myths that we have about the way the world is and actually shows that, in fact, and he says, um, we're wrong about the world and things are better than we think. And that, But that doesn't mean... Therefore, we must focus on the things that still are bad. Um, and he includes things like climate change and so on as part of that. But he does show the position um, of things like poverty, global poverty um, and, and so on are just very different from what you might otherwise glean from the media and so on. Mm. Fantastic book. Life-changing for me in my late stage. <laughs> well, thank you. I can't wait to read it and add it to my book list, um, which is getting quite long now, but um, <laughs> um, after doing this podcast, but have always admired the work of Hans Rosling and um, I'm really keen to read that. So thank you, Chris. So my final question um, is the genie question. Um, I've realised that it should be um, three wishes if I'm doing it strictly based on Aladdin um, because um, the genie gave Aladdin three wishes but I'm being stingy and just giving you one if you could change one thing to improve health inequality what would that one thing be it would be getting people to realize that there is not one thing to change health inequality it is such a complex thing and we need to realize that we won't make any impact on it as individual people, organisations or whatever. And I think that once we realise the complexity of it, that it's stuff that we can actually all work on. And if we do it together, the impact of the whole will be so much greater than the sum of its individual parts. Thank you, Chris. I really love that. And what a way to finish, because actually that encompasses everything we've just been talking about, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll speak to you soon. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealth or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding Fair Health. <laughs>